0: The Morellian Method of Analysis is based on the work of Giovanni Morelli, a 19th century Italian man who was a well-known art critic and eventually a politician, but who is best known today for his ultra-detail-oriented approach to categorizing and identifying the work of particular artists based on relatively obscure aspects of their work. What this meant in practice was looking at, for instance, the folds in the ears of people painted into the background of a composition, or noting the way an artist would foreshorten or shade the digits on the hand shown in a portrait. By fixating on what would initially seem to be relatively minor details, someone like Morelli could work up a profile of a particular artist, showing how they portray background subjects' earfolds, and how their portrayal of those earfolds changed over time, over the course of their career, and then in turn show how artists compare and contrast to each other. In this regard, but also quite possibly he could figure out if a newly discovered work actually belonged to a known artist's catalog, and if so, where that work fit, when it was painted based on what was known about their earfold painting evolution. If you've ever read a Sherlock Holmes story or seen one portrayed on TV or in a movie, you have likely seen a Morellian analytical method being applied. This method is impressive to watch or even hear about because it requires a great deal of expertise and what's often called connoisseurship. To become a connoisseur of a particular field, you're not just an expert in the sense of being able to ramble off facts and data that you've memorized. You actually know these facts, that data, so well that you can almost feel in your gut when something is off or something is done perfectly. Or when, in the case of an art world connoisseur, a piece you've never seen before, and about which you know nothing except that which you can see with your own eyes in that moment, was absolutely created by a particular artist. You know the details of these artists' works so intimately that you can look at the ear folds and just know it was made by them, or that it absolutely wasn't, no matter how much the rest of the composition might seem to be in their style. This method of Morelli's was developed, in part, as a result of his background in medical science. Specifically, he taught anatomy at the University of Munich, which then translated into his obsession with ear folds and hand shading and other body morphology-oriented analysis techniques. His focus on such details gave him access to and expertise over more intricate and often more accurate bits of information than those that were available to folks who focused on the grand flourishes of style or even on other tiny technical details like how the brush strokes were applied and what color palette was utilized. The Morellian method has since become the object of much attention by the big data and computational analysis world. Which makes sense if you consider that someone like Morelli would spend ages collecting and documenting small data points before crunching that data to use in assessing other works. This is exactly the type of work that certain types of so-called artificial intelligences are optimized for, and they can do it on a much larger scale crunching images of every single painting that's ever been made available online, and cross-referencing that information with what's known about the artist, and then using that information to identify unknown works based on the ear folds, the hands, and a great many non-anatomical identifiers, like how paint dobs are applied, what pigments were used, and what landscapes were being portrayed, and when. A kind of near-instant, computational, encyclopedic connoisseurship. What I want to talk about today starts with this type of analysis before pulling us deeper into a world of luxury asset markets, potential fake masterpieces, and what it means for something to be called art. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Telegraph, and it's entitled French Museum Discovers Half of Its Collection Are Fakes. So the lead is right there in the headline, but the details of this story are thus. A museum in Elne, a town in the southern part of France, which houses a collection of work from the early 20th century artist Etienne Terrousse, an artist who was born in Eln, has discovered that 82... Of the 140 works that they have on display are, in fact, forgeries. The museum is state-owned, so the police have seized the forgeries and are in the process of trying to track down those who forged them, starting with those who brought the works to the museum initially and tracing the record of possession backward from there. The discovery seems to have emerged in part because of a refurbishment of the museum that was being undertaken, and those who run the museum have said that they believe a large number of museums in the region featuring work from artists who lived all over that part of the country have been forged, and that what they're facing here is a network of sophisticated forgers complete with the necessary infrastructure to conduct this type of fraud on a very large scale. One of the most notable things about this story to me was a quote from the mayor of Eln, which was a response to a question about this discovery. He said, quote, It's a catastrophe. I put myself in the place of all the people who came to visit the museum, who saw fake works of art, who paid an entrance fee. It's intolerable, and I hope we find those responsible. End quote. He seems to pity the people who visited this museum and who saw fake works instead of real ones. People who, conceivably, had this news never been released, had the forgeries never been discovered, or their discovery never made public, would likely never have known the difference. This quote, though, states clearly something about the art world that's a bit strange, if you actually take the time to look at it objectively. In a lot of cases... We do not visit art museums and galleries for the aesthetic experience, to see something beautiful. Instead, we are hoping to see something valuable, something rare, something important, something unique. The idea that the mayor believes that discovering these works are forgeries could retroactively influence whether or not visitors enjoyed their experience at the museum puts a very fine point on this reality. When we talk about art, we're not always talking about the same thing. When we talk about appreciating art, enjoying art, being a lover of art, being a connoisseur of art even, we're not all speaking the same language. or are thinking about these things in the same way, from the same perspective with the same priorities. This man pities people who came to see what were, until they were redefined, considered to be works of art. The only thing that changed about these pieces, which were until recently considered to be of a high enough quality to fool even the experts, was our perception of their heritage, of who made them and when. The artifact itself has remained otherwise unchanged. And yet, for the purposes of this museum, and for many other museums and galleries and art collectors and aficionados worldwide, that sameness, that lack of change, is not really the point. Let's talk a bit about art forgery. Most art forgeries are either copies of existing known works from a famous artist or new works created in the style of a famous artist that are thought to have been lost to history. It tends to take a great deal of skill to produce a convincing forgery of an artwork because it's not enough to simply learn the general style of an artist or to paint or draw or sculpt or whatever else, something that looks like something else they've made, in addition to style and technique, basically being as good with the medium as that artist was. Forgers also have to use materials from the proper time period, have to get the brush strokes and other gestures just right for that moment in the artist's career, have to fake things like artists' signatures, but also museum, a gallery, and collectors' stamps, and other evidence of the work's passage through time. They also generally need to understand how to properly age the materials that are used, baking oil paintings so that they set correctly, so that they seem, even using modern methods under black lights and microscopes, to have been painted a few hundred years ago, and then faking the smells and the dust and the accumulation of damage that such a work would acquire over that time period, based on where these pieces were purported to have been kept or displayed in the meantime. It's a whole lot of work, and it's anything but a guaranteed win, in large part because of all the scientific techniques that are available to museum curators and gallery acquisition managers today, but also in part because of the availability of techniques like the Sherlock Holmesian analysis approach that I mentioned in the intro, the Morellian Method, It was, in fact, this very method that led to the discovery of all the fakes at that museum in France. An art historian noticed that some of the paintings in the museum, which were attributed to the museum's feature artist, Etienne Terousse, showed buildings that were only constructed after Terousse had died in 1922. So while not precisely the same thing as looking at painted ears and hands, this kind of asymmetric approach to outing fake artwork, looking at things beyond the broad style of the work, can serve the art world very well. It's possible for even the most careful and skilled of forgers to neglect such details, as someone who is a connoisseur of art is still unlikely to be an expert on everything, which in this case means that they were not expert enough on local history and urban development to fool those who were looking for forgeries, or at least not forever. There is a fine line between an art forgery and a replica or a reproduction of a work. In one of my art classes back at university, we produced so-called master's studies, which were projects intended to train our hands by essentially just looking at and copying as accurately as possible works by famous artists. Similar methods were used during the European Renaissance period, during which artists typically learned their craft by apprenticing with other artists, and they learned in part by copying, again, as accurately as possible, works produced by the master to whom they were apprenticed. These works were then sold by the master, and this pseudo-mass production method was considered to be a sort of payment to the master for sharing their craft and training the next generation of artists, while also benefiting the apprentice who was working for free, but who was achieving an education as they did so. We've also seen, throughout the ages, and even as far back as the Romans quite possibly even further than that, but we don't have as much evidence of such things from before the Pax Romana period, so we can't say for certain about much earlier history. But back in Rome, artists would copy the works of Greek artists, which was a culture that they had conquered, but which was also looked upon as kind of a treasure that they had brought into their culture, into their empire, because of the Greeks' accomplishments within the world of art, among other things. It's suspected that these copies were made out of respect kind of like the master's studies that I mentioned, and to perhaps even share the wealth of something of beauty with those who could not afford to own original works. But it's difficult to know for certain. We know copies were made, and it's also assumed that in the case of these copies, the name of the artist who did the copying was of little importance to the person acquiring it, but it was a very common practice in this time, regardless of the specifics. The fuzzy line between copying for what would seem to be legitimate purposes and copying to pull the wool over someone's eyes becomes a lot more clear when you try to fool a buyer into thinking a work was produced by someone who did not produce it. A French veterinarian turned sculptor named Guy Hain stumbled upon one of the foundries that had worked with the very famous sculpture artist Rodin early in the 20th century and convinced them, convinced the owners of these foundries decades later in the 1980s to use those original Rodin molds to produce recast works for him, for Hayne. In the 1990s, Hayne flooded the market with fake but carbon copy Rodin's, all made from the original molds. And he made millions upon millions of dollars selling these works, some of which ended up in museums, some of which were sold by the most well-known and well-respected fine art auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's. And this practice was actually somewhat sort of legal, or at least it was in a legal gray area for a very long time, up until Hayne decided to start using the signature of that foundry on his work, which was considered to be an implication on his part that these works were original Rodin's rather than being recasts of the original pieces, which was something that he had left unclear up until that point, and which is what had allowed him to stay in that legal gray area. Hain was imprisoned and fined in 1997, then started up his forgery business again after being set free. He was arrested again in 2002, but as I mentioned in a recent episode of the show, in a lot of cases, the consequences for bad behavior are not substantial enough to counter the benefits of bad behavior. So although Hain had almost single-handedly ruined the art market for bronze works for years because everyone had become suspicious due to the now obvious ease with which original works could be recast— And sold as originals, he still got away with a relative slap on the wrist for all the trouble he caused to the art world. And he made a whole bunch of money, even after all the fines that he paid doing it. Also, considered forgery, beyond creating a work and signing it with another artist's name, or otherwise creating evidence that makes it seem like it was created by another artist, is selling a work that you know to be a fake, but presenting it as if it's the real deal anyway, because you stand to make more money that way. It's also a forgery if you discover a work and then sell it as something more important than it is. Maybe you find something vaguely Vermeerish at a flea market and then create some kind of history to prop it up in the eyes of potential buyers, to make them think they've discovered a diamond in the rough when all they're really discovering is a fake history, a fake story that you have cobbled together to increase the sale price. In all three cases, the crime is not copying something, per se, but attempting to make others believe that the copy or the likeness was created by someone who did not create it. It's the signing of the name, not the painting of the work. It's the telling of a fabricated story about the piece in an attempt to make big bucks off of it, not the buying or owning or even selling the non-famous work as what it actually is, a non-famous work. All of which takes us back to an interesting point that I mentioned earlier about art and what we're really talking about when we talk about art. Because art, much like pornography or other subjective, difficult to accurately and precisely define things, is probably most honestly described by repeating the colloquialism, I'll know it when I see it, which is a phrase that's been used in Supreme Court cases related to so-called obscenity here in the United States, but which is also a kind of concise way of saying, I can't really come up with a reliable definition, but show me something, and I will tell you case by case what is and what is not art to me. Now, this is, of course, fine and good to say, but it clearly falls short of a standard that we can use universally and that we can reliably use in a legal context. Within the world of art, a classificatory dispute refers to a debate over whether or not something is art, whether it's perhaps craft instead of art, or if it's maybe just trash, or some type of curation, or an accident of nature. One of the more famous works that addresses this issue head-on is called Fountain by the artist Marcel Duchamp. And this piece is interesting on multiple levels, but as an artifact, the actual physical object is a public urinal flipped 90 degrees with the signature R. Mutt written on it, along with the year 1917. What makes this piece so interesting is that it's just that, a urinal. Someone else made it. J. L. Ironworks, a company that makes urinals, created this so-called artwork, and Duchamp, depending on which version of the story you deem to be more likely, either wrote that name and date on it before submitting it for display, or received it from a female artist friend, who he never identified, who was herself using the pseudonym Richard Mutt, and then he submitted it on her behalf. Either way, the piece was submitted by Duchamp for an exhibition that was being put on by the Society of Independent Artists in New York City in 1917, and the rules for the exhibition stated that any work submitted by artists who paid the entrance fee would be put on display. This work, however, was rejected and only became known because it was photographed and published in an art journal called The Blind Man by a well-known photographer and art promoter named Alfred Stieglitz. Fountain, this urinal with some writing on it, was voted as the most influential artwork of the 20th century by 500 British art world professionals back in 2004. And though the reason for this influence may not be immediately clear, again, it's just a urinal. What Duchamp did with this piece, by submitting it, like any other piece of art, catalyzed a meta-analysis of the art world that continues to this day. If you've ever seen conceptual art, performances or displays, or even more traditional works that color outside the lines in some way, I'm talking about things that challenge the very idea of what art is, including things like Andy Warhol's mass-produced pieces, Banksy's street art, and Yoko Ono's cut piece performance, where she would appear on stage wearing a nice suit with a pair of scissors in front of her, and would then invite members of the audience to come up on stage and use the scissors to cut away pieces of her suit. If you've ever seen anything like that, and chances are you've seen something along those lines at some point, then you have seen the intellectual descendants of Fountain. That work of Duchamp's, or the still nameless woman on whose behalf he submitted it, which potentially adds another dimension to the piece, it's widely considered to be the work that made the world of conceptual art a thing, beyond the Dadaists and other movements that were trying their hand at similar things around this time, but which hadn't quite figured out their voice or purpose quite yet. That this work forces the viewer, or even just someone who knows it exists without having seen it, to wonder what art is. To ask who can consider themselves to be artists. What makes art critics and other experts so special that they get to decide such things and to consider how we judge work that was pointed at, collected, or curated by someone, but not created by them? That's conceptual art, and that's what Duchamp's Fountain represents here. Which makes the conversation about what art is a little troublesome, doesn't it? Lacking that context, lacking what I just told you about Duchamp's Fountain, would you look at a public urinal and call it art? Why not? It's actually a fairly impressive creation, isn't it? If you step back from the background utility of and the cultural biases surrounding such utilitarian objects, aren't we surrounded by functionally beautiful things all day, every day? So, what makes a painting more worthy of the label art than a mass produced street lamp or telephone? What makes a public urinal offered up by Duchamp more art like? than the same thing submitted by you or me? What makes Fountain more art-like than the urinals inside all the public bathrooms around the world, even those that are exact carbon copies made by the exact same manufacturer of the one that eventually became famous? It's here, I think, that we have to separate art in the sense that most of us use the word describing something that has been created by someone, often for expressive purposes, which is to be consumed either visually or experientially for the sake of aesthetic appreciation or emotional impact or some other type of communication, something along those lines. We have to divide that from art in the sense of a tangible good that is bought and sold as an asset, as something of value and which can even gain value over time. And that latter definition is the one that's very often used when we look at what's being created for and sold in the fine art industry, the world of galleries, museums, and most private collectors. It's important to note up front that this does not mean that these entities are not also buying work because they find that work beautiful or important, or, like with Fountain, to be of historic significance. But it does mean that there are other concerns which color this conversation, and many of them are not obvious from the outside and are not as straightforward as, let's fill up our space with beautiful, interesting things. The world of art valuation, that is, figuring out how much a piece of art is worth, is littered with seemingly subjective positions and views. And in practice, the pricing of artwork usually ends up predicated on subjective valuation, in the same way that buying shares of a company on the stock market Is predicated on subjective valuation. You buy a share of stock, and if you're intending to sell that share for a profit, it's prudent to only buy shares that you think will go up in price over time. There are a lot of indicators that one can read to increase their chances of timing things correctly so that they can buy low and sell high, but it's anything but a guaranteed thing. There are a lot of externalities that can influence how much a share of stock is worth, And in some cases, the price will shift without any obvious cause. You can retroactively go back and try to explain these things, but even those explanations are not necessarily correct. Such are the joys and uncertainties of making a living based on the sometimes opaque mechanisms of the relatively free market. So just like public perception of a brand like Apple can influence the price of Apple stock so too can the perception of a particular artist influence the price and perceived value of their work. Also likely to influence the price is the complexity or medium of the work, the relative rarity of work from that artist, how often they produce new work and how big their catalog currently is, where and for how much their work has been sold previously, and who owns and has owned their work in the past. That last component is actually surprisingly important when it comes to valuation. The chain of ownership of a piece seems to be one of the more effective means of inflating the price of not just a single work, but potentially all work produced by a particular artist. The rationale here is that someone with good taste in art A museum curator, a well-known art collector, will be more likely to invest in good stuff than you or me. And if we're willing to accept that these experts will, in general, have better artistic taste than us, we may be willing to put a premium on what they pick. In this way, they become both investors and tastemakers. Their purchase becomes a seal of approval that others take seriously which then could cause the work that they own and have owned to increase in value. This is something like the hubbub in the stock market every time a famous investor like Warren Buffett buys a new stake in something. If Buffett invests a bunch of money in IBM, the price of IBM tends to increase because this guy, who is well known for making good investments, has invested in them. So that increases the desirability, and therefore usually the price, of those stocks. And over time, investors like Buffett, in the stock world and in the art world, end up placing bets that very often become self-fulfilling prophecies. So going back to the art market, a work that has a chain of ownership that includes famous art investors and reputable museums and galleries, will almost certainly be worth more because of this effect, and because in essence, that chain implies validation for the work. Many tastemakers consider it to be beautiful or important, so it's a far better bet monetarily than some random piece of artwork which we may personally consider to be more beautiful or significant, but which the market may not. Very often, then, the value of a piece can be more about the history of that piece than the piece itself. The history of its creation, of who made it, of the story of how it traveled from its creation date to now, but also who has owned it over that period of time, which makes a whole lot of sense if you think about it. And if you think about how our perception of a thing changes when we learn more about that thing, or perceive something about it, whether or not that perception is true, I have found consistently that some of the most ostensibly important places in the world real landmarks that are held to be very dear, especially to locals, are also often some of the least impressive places by every other standard. Okay, so maybe a famous battle happened there. Maybe it's where a document was signed or a movie was filmed, a well-known record was recorded, but so what? Does that historical context really warrant the admiration and love that we harbor for such places? especially when there's a far more beautiful street, valley, recording studio, and so on, just a few miles away, and which you probably don't have to pay to access. But the thing is, context does matter. And I mean that in all possible meanings of the phrase, but in this case, context matters to us as humans, because we are actually physiologically wired to enjoy things that we perceive to be important. Or luxurious, or expensive, or socially lucrative, more than things that we do not perceive to have those traits. There have been hundreds of studies and experiments conducted on and adjacent to this subject, but my favorite one is one of the older ones, which has been tested and retested over and over again as our technology has gotten better and the results have been consistent. You put someone in a machine that measures brain activity, something like an fMRI machine, and you give them wine. Pleasure centers in their brain will light up regardless of the wine, but a whole lot more lights go on in the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that manages, among other things, our perception of self within society when we think that we are drinking more expensive wine, even though it's the same wine that we drank before, which we were told was less expensive. So there's an increase in brain activity in that vitally important region when we think we are doing something that is vaguely luxurious, even if the physical indulgence has not itself changed. So there's evidence that we don't just seem to enjoy things more when we perceive them to be higher end. We actually do enjoy those things more, which is an interesting thing to know because it allows us to potentially manipulate our experience of life by recalibrating our sense of what luxury means. But it also allows entities like brands to manipulate us by doing the realigning for us and by positioning themselves and their products and services as the triggers for that increased physiological response. This response is tied to the invisible, not real value we imbue in things because of what we perceive them to be. This wine is more expensive. This record store is historic. This theater is famous because Elvis once performed here. Does it matter whether he actually did or not? We still feel like the place is more significant because we have been told that that's the case. We now perceive this theater to be more than an identical theater in which Elvis never performed. And when it comes to art, the same is true. Lacking all context, lacking all background information, all data about the artist, all outlines about the intent and meaning and significance of the work, lacking all tastemakers and curators and experts, we would be limited to judging art exclusively using our own senses and sensibilities. And in a way, that would be wonderful. The industry would certainly be a lot less confusing to the layman if that were the case. And I suspect museums and galleries would be a lot less intimidating to people who sometimes today feel like they don't get it and therefore are not really welcome within those hallowed halls filled with implied meaning and history. But at the same time, if that were the case, I think we would be leaving a whole lot of potential value on the table. It's unlikely... That you would get as much value out of looking at a normal urinal placed in a museum versus looking at Duchamp's fountain with its context intact, its significance shared and understood. These deeper levels can seem ridiculous and even exclusionary at times, but they also allow us to convey a great deal of information and emotion, a lot of questions It allows us to express a lot that would be perhaps inexpressible through other tangible mediums. So these artworks, whatever physical shape they might take, can become beloved, much like an old battlefield, which is today just a mediocre-looking flatland covered with grass with a plaque on it. And it can be both mediocre in the sense of what it physically, tangibly is, but also valuable in some intangible sense beyond that. Now the flip side of that argument is that by allowing this context to be defined only by certain people, by curators and gallery owners and often wealthy art investors, we also limit the scope of the conversation we could be having, the context we could be sharing from generation to generation, because of the art that we choose to celebrate. Because of the financial interests of some of the entities who tell us what's good and what is not what's important and what is not, we may not be able to totally trust their judgment in this regard. They are, after all, financially incentivized to consider the things that they own, or the things that are similar to the things that they own, and the works to which they have early access, masterpieces. And by declaring them to be important and beautiful and the standards by which all other art should be judged, they increase their own wealth because they now own masterpieces, which they can either sell or charge the public to view. And they also relegate those artists who exist on the outside of their circle. And that word is multi-purpose here, their economic and educational circle, their national circle, their religious circle, and even just their interpersonal circle. It relegates those who don't fit cleanly into those categories to a non-masterpiece, non-celebrated, tacitly non-important status. They are unlikely to be in the art magazines or up on gallery walls. They are unlikely to be promoted by influencers and collectors. And this is something that's slowly being remedied, but it's also been a reality for most of art history that many of these works that fall outside that circle of influence, outside the aura of the monetarily valuable curated fine art world, sometimes won't even be considered art. They'll instead be considered craft, or mere industrial artifice. Something like the urinal, but not the one that's in the museum, the one that is stored in a washroom somewhere. Perhaps it's nice to look at if you're into industrial design, but it's not impressive and valuable and culturally significant like a Magritte or a Picasso. Only now, just in very recent decades, are artists from African countries, from South American countries, from Asian countries, beginning to get some recognition as artists rather than as craftsmen, making pretty things that are of no intellectual significance. These works have always been there and have always contained more than their physical manifestation, just like any other art. But the desire or maybe the ability to consider these works from an alternative point of view, to consider fully the richness of the ideas and perspectives being presented, even if they were different from the generally westernized views that we were celebrating, that has been lacking. Now, like I said, this is getting better all the time, but it is still a problem and it still shapes and biases much of our perception of what art is. And it's prudent to be aware of that. And it's also a good idea to be aware that it's not just art world insiders who behave this way, who favor context and very specific types of context over almost every other variable when it comes to what they consider to be important and beautiful. The Mona Lisa is the most visited, most photographed artwork in the world and few, experts or otherwise, would tell you that this is the case because it's the best painting ever produced. What's important about the Mona Lisa is the work's context, its presence in pop culture, the preponderance of history books in which it's been featured. We like it because it's rare and strange and storied. It's been featured in so many heist films that it's getting kind of ridiculous at this point. Museums and other such places are about presenting beautiful, challenging, interesting works to visitors. But that's not all they're about. If it was, every museum would only display reproductions of these works. It would certainly be less expensive for them to do so, and their insurance premiums would drop substantially. No, much of what drives people to these places is the rarity and the history of the pieces. People want to get close They want to be within arm's reach of a true relic, of something that is significant. I am personally a huge fan of museums. They're almost always the first things I check out when I visit a new city. And I visit them and happily pay the entry fee each time, even knowing that much or all of the work that they have on display is also available online. I have browsed their websites and the online galleries that Some of them have produced in partnership with tech companies, sometimes as virtual reality environments. I've got a plugin on my web browser so that every time I open a new tab, it automatically displays a new piece of artwork from somewhere around the world, complete with its title and a link to some information about it. So I know these things, these alternative experiences are available. I can be exposed to these artworks without having to go out of my way to visit these physical locations. And yet, the museums are still a thrill to explore. Their physical spaces set aside exclusively for exposing oneself to aesthetic pleasures, to challenging ideas, to remarkable technique, and to all sorts of awe and surprise and emotion and empathy. They exist, in short, to add another type of context, another layer of history, another association to the work that they display. Seeing the Mona Lisa, which we can all almost certainly picture in our mind's eye without even trying, it's a different experience to see it at the Louvre than on a postcard or in photographs taken by a friend at the Louvre. It's that historical battlefield effect all over again. If you look around, you can see this same effect everywhere. If you're told the beef that you're eating is grass-fed, you'll probably enjoy it more. If you're told the celery is organic, you will probably enjoy it more. If you're told the wine is local, or it's an impressive vintage, or it's unique in some way, it was owned by Elvis, you will probably enjoy it more. Whether or not these labels are true doesn't necessarily change how much we enjoy the consequences of believing them to be true. What we believe about a thing changes our perception of that thing, whether we're talking about food or wine or people or artwork. Our appreciation, then, is influenced by way more than the mere aesthetic and physical experiences that we have. I don't personally think that this knowledge absolutely leads to one conclusion or another, When it comes to the world of fine art and forgeries and how these new quote-unquote fake works are produced and how we treat these works and how we treat those who created them when we discover that they are real work with fake histories with fake credentials but i do think because none of our experiences are free of these biases that this understanding this awareness cannot help but be valuable context There's a documentary that I'd like to recommend today. This is available on Netflix and a few other places around the internet, and it's called Beltrachi, B-E-L-T-R-A-C-C-H-I, The Art of Forgery. This is Very relevant to this episode of the show. It was actually a documentary that I watched as part of the research for this episode. And it's about a man named Wolfgang Beltracchi, who is a very roguish, color-outside-the-lines sort of dude, who also happens to be an expert art forger. He is an amazing art historian. He knows all of the intimate details of the artists that he copies. And he's an incredibly skilled artist in his own right. He can copy so many different styles, and he also has his own style. But he takes a certain almost perverse childlike pleasure in copying these other artists' work, and then even trying to improve upon them in certain subtle ways. And it's this tendency of his, it turns out, that ends up being part of his downfall. The documentary is about his exploits over several decades and having produced hundreds of works that were sold by auction houses and bought by museums and such that were purported to be from these great European masters. He was eventually caught, he was eventually imprisoned, and he basically takes the viewer through the process of what is involved in creating a convincing, compelling art forgery while also riffing on some of the flaws that exist within the fine art industry that allow him to take these experts for a ride in the way that he does. So again, that's Bell The Art of Forgery. It's a very interesting documentary if you get the chance. If you've never seen this type of work, if you've never seen fine art produced, it's fascinating just watching somebody who is so good at what they do perform their craft. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at let'snotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. And as I mentioned before, if you are in North America, I would love to see you on my upcoming tour. You can find out more about that at becomingtour.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.